This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Today we will hear Jesus, the loving Savior, the Good Shepherd, the Lord who calls us friends, talk all about hell. Will few be saved, someone asks him, and his answer raises issues that resound to our day. Why is there a hell at all? Why would God make a world in which people he loves end up in hell? And what about non-Catholics? Where will they end up? If they aren't saved, why did God make them? And if they are saved, then what's the point of Jesus? We will get to all of them, plus the recommendation from Jesus, Mary, and Pope Francis that you talk to your children about hell. But do not miss the end where we talk about the great hope that Jesus offers here. The great hope, greater than you may have imagined, greater than I thought. I'll read the passage from Luke chapter 13, but as I'll point out, the version in Matthew adds important details. The Narrow Door, Salvation and Rejection He passed through towns and villages, teaching as he went and making his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few people be saved? He answered them, Strive to enter the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will attempt to enter, but will not be strong enough. After the master of the house has arisen and locked the door, then will you stand outside knocking and saying, Lord, open the door for us. He will say to you in reply, You do not know where you are from. And you will say, We ate and drank in your company, and you taught in our streets. And he will say to you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. And there will be wailing and grinding of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and the west, and from the north and the south, and will recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. This gospel should make us stop and reevaluate everything. Lord, will only a few people be saved? Asks someone as Jesus journeys on his way, and he basically answers, yes, few will be saved. The answer is even clearer in Matthew where he says, how narrow the gate and constricted the road that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Heaven is hard to get into, and we need to be strong to handle a face-to-face relationship with Almighty God. In Luke, Jesus then describes the dialogue that those who want to be saved will have with the Master. Lord, open the door for us, they will say. I do not know where you are from, he will answer from behind the barrier, because these people truly do not know God. Even though they say he ate and drank in their company and taught in their streets. In other words, these were people who were not open to the faith. And he, in fact, goes so far as to call them evildoers. In the Gospel of Mark, this is even more harsh. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Some will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty deeds in your name? 
He will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. So if people who prophesy and exercise demons and do amazing things in Christ's name don't get in, then, oh my gosh, who does? The one who does the will of my Father in heaven, says Jesus. In Matthew, Jesus also says, The gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction, and those who enter through it are many. So Jesus is a true believer in hell. He says few avoid it, and he spoke about it more than anyone else in the Bible. And yet many of us, most of us, nearly all of us, simply don't believe him. He must mean something else. We have the vague sense that people used to believe in hell and damnation, but that we are smarter now. And we think, didn't Vatican II say the opposite? Something about how everyone is fine now without needing to feel guilty all the time? Well, first of all, we need to understand that this is in no way the case. Not long ago, headlines around the world claimed Pope Francis declared that there was no hell. Not true. Pope Francis has always insisted that there is a devil and there is a hell and has warned people against going there. He directed one urgent warning against hell to the mafia in 2014, saying, quote, Convert, there is still time so that you don't end up in hell. That is what awaits you if you continue on this path. You have a father and a mother. Think of them. Cry a little and convert, end quote. In his message for Lent in 2016, he made it clear that hell is not just for mafiosos either. He said, quote, The danger always remains that by a constant refusal to open the doors of their hearts to Christ who knocks on them in the poor, the proud, rich, and powerful will end up condemning themselves and plunging into the eternal abyss of solitude, which is hell. End quote. Headlines reported that he had rejected hell because of a scare quotes interview he did with an 89-year-old atheist friend who was a journalist. The man took no notes when talking to the Pope, made no recording, and admitted that he used his own words to express thoughts he attributed to the Pope. In fact, a Pope could not declare that there is no hell, even if one wanted to, because Jesus is the source of truth, and he said, over and over again, that there is a hell. The Catechism of the Catholic Church agrees. It quotes Jesus saying what we just heard about the many who go to destruction and the few who find the narrow gate. Then it adds, quote, The teaching of the Church affirms the existence of hell and its eternity. Immediately after death, the souls of those who die in a state of mortal sin descend into hell, where they suffer the punishments of hell, eternal fire. The chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God, in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness for which he was created and for which he longs. End quote. So hell is real. But why? Why is there a hell at all? For the same reason there is a devil. God gave us real freedom, and we can really choose to follow him, and we can really choose not to. The devil chose not to. So do people. If you choose not God, then you go to a place of terrible darkness and loneliness, because God is all in all. This is why St. John Paul II called hell the ultimate safeguard of a man's conscience. If we don't do good for the love of God, we may at least do good for fear of being in hell. So, let's look at the way hell is described in the gospel today. Jesus doesn't say, you did bad things, therefore you have to go to hell. He says, I do not know you. The difference is key. He says this even to some people who were religious, but apparently people who do know him enter right in. So what does this mean, I never knew you? 
That's the best description of hell and how people earn it. But as we will find out at the end, it's also a great description of the hope that we have. But think of your own case. Imagine someone has clearly shown their distaste for you all their life. They find you boring, kind of pointless and pathetic. They find your stories dull and grating. They roll their eyes when you talk about the things that you are most passionate about. They dislike your family. They think your friends are losers. They hate your music. They dislike the kinds of movies you like to watch. They prefer offensive music and offensive movies that you will never watch. Well, the last thing you would do is to invite someone like that on an all-expenses-paid special vacation with you. So the analogy there is for non-religious people who blow off Jesus entirely. Over and over again in life, they've had opportunities to meet Jesus, to know God, to be friends with him, and they said, no, thank you. They didn't talk to him, they didn't pray, they didn't learn what he wanted, they just blew him off. And Jesus' lesson here is, if you blow Jesus off for a lifetime, you will get exactly what you asked for. Now, imagine those people who don't like you, but make a show of pretending to be your friend at various times, maybe at Christmas and Easter, or maybe way more often, maybe they pretend to be your friend for some kind of personal gain, or they pretend to be your friend around people that you know that they like, while avoiding and shunning you whenever they can. Would that behavior make you more or less likely to bring them on vacation with you? Well, if you blow off God and dislike him while pretending to like him when it's convenient and clearly ignoring him when it's not, that's not friendship. And he will say to you, I never knew you. Now imagine an even worse scenario. Imagine the friend who most betrayed your friendship in your life. The person who used your loyalty to get ahead and then dropped you, not caring how it hurt you. Or if you have been blessed to never have an experience like that, think of literature. I'm not sure which of these you'll know, but you'll wince at the one you do. Falstaff and Prince Harry and Shakespeare. Judah Ben-Hur and Masala and Ben-Hur. Truman's friend, what's that guy's name, in The Truman Show. Dante's friend, Mondego and Count of Monte Cristo. Wickham and Darcy. Or the one I saw most recently, and most terribly, the talent scout in the Sound of Freedom movie. When the poet Dante describes hell, he sees the betrayal of a friend as so awful that he makes his two worst characters, the two suffering the most in the very pit of hell, to be Brutus, who betrayed Caesar, his friend, and Judas, who betrayed Jesus Christ. So let's think of Judas for a second. Jesus offered his body and blood to Judas, and Judas handed over Jesus' body to the people who sought his blood. Jesus gave himself to die for sinners, and Judas took money to hand him over to be killed by sinners. And what about us? Jesus gave us everything we have, then came among us to help us appreciate it, then died so we could keep it. What will he do if we betray him and give all of that to the devil who actively undermines Jesus? That is why the Catechism says, quote, Mortal sin is a radical possibility of human freedom, as is love itself. If it is not redeemed by repentance and God's forgiveness, it causes exclusion from Christ's kingdom and eternal death of hell, for our freedom has the power to make choices forever with no turning back. End quote. So, hell is real. Even if some priests and even bishops have forgotten it, 
the church has not. The church cannot, because the prophet Daniel wrote of the dead, quote, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some shall live forever. Others shall be in everlasting horror and disgrace, end quote. That's scary. And when the reading comes up in Mass, the church, which usually has nothing but positive things to say in its liturgical acclamations, exhorts the people this way, Pray that you have the strength to stand before the Son of Man. Think of that. We pray to be able to be strong enough to stand face to face with Jesus. This is hard for us to wrap our minds around. We're used to the Jesus of mercy who we meet as sinners here below. But once we have made our final choice, we will meet Jesus the judge. It's hard for us to fathom also because it's so very real. We live in a world that's formed by marketing. We have gotten used to evaluating not by quality, but by image. Things are as good as their logo, as good as the people we associate with them, as good as their cultural cachet or their effectiveness with key demographics. Surely God will be okay with us. We have been 100% on his side in our image. But facing God's judgment is the opposite of marketing. God doesn't care if we have a reputation for holiness or if we have all the right religious aspirations and affiliations. He only sees our heart for him as reflected in how we spent our time, either in loving him and our neighbor or not. In the evening of life, we will be judged on love alone, said St. John of the Cross. Will God help us? So it becomes vital to figure out what kind of people are Jesus's loving friends. I hate to say it because I fall short, but one description of his friends is people who can say with Psalm 119, How I love your law, Lord. I study it all day long. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. At midnight, I rise to give you thanks for your righteous laws. Oh, how I love your law. End quote. How many people can hear that and say, that describes me? I remember the first time I read Psalm 119 as a new convert, it chilled me to my soul. I felt actual revulsion about the idea of becoming the kind of person that that describes. I've gotten a lot better, but I'm still trying to get there. Or Psalm 122, I rejoiced when I heard them say, let us go to the house of the Lord. Is that what we feel when we're told that we have to go to church? Or Psalm 84, they are happy who dwell in your house, forever singing your praise. Sometimes I think both of these things describe me, and I go to church with joy to spend a holy hour. Sometimes the hour is deep and full. But sometimes, after 50 minutes, I'm so anxious to get out of there that I convince myself I have fulfilled a moral hour and just leave. So, am I the kind of person who will want to spend forever in heaven? Well, I don't presume to be, but I hope to be. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people I know are. And I'll explain why in a minute. But first, it's important to see how seriously the church takes these warnings. St. Cyril of Alexandria summed it up this way. The way to life is narrow, he says, because, quote, whoever would enter must first before everything else possess an upright and uncorrupted faith and then a spotless morality. These will enter easily by the narrow door and run along the narrow way, end quote. But on the broad way to hell are people with, quote, an unrestrained tendency toward cardinal lust and a shameful and leisure-loving life. End quote. So for Cyril, it's clear. If we live our life, quotes, thrusting from it the divine law and completely unmindful of the sacred commandments, 
then we're training ourselves to choose the pleasure of the world over the purity of heaven. If we, quote, withdraw from these things, be with Christ, and keep the festival with him, we accustom ourselves to the things of heaven. Suffering with Christ now will prevent a greater suffering without him later. St. Cyril lived a long time ago, so let's look at how Vatican II put it. Quote, A monumental struggle against the powers of darkness pervades the whole history of man. Caught in this conflict, man is obliged to wrestle constantly if he is to cling to what is good, nor can he achieve his own integrity without great efforts and the help of God's grace. End quote. Does that sound like an excessively harsh view of life? The fact is, life is excessively harsh. Life is mired in sin. I want to talk in a minute about how it's also uplifted by love and by goodness. But first, let's talk about how it's mired in sin. Life is sin on the national level, for starters. I think I mentioned I recently read Black Elk Speaks, the flawed but fascinating retelling of the story of Black Elk, a Lakota Indian who lived through some of the major flashpoints in the history of America's westward expansion. Two things became clear in reading this. First, the Americans were brutal, uncaring, starkly unjust in their treatment of American Indians, unprecedentedly, historically brutal and unjust. Talk about betraying friends. We are guilty of that big time. But second, as the book made clear and other research does, on a smaller scale, the American Indians themselves had been brutal, uncaring, and starkly unjust to each other's tribes for generations, attacking each other and killing young men, the elderly, and children while taking the women. In fact, look at any nation's history, and you will find that it is a history of brutality and injustice. As a victim, sometimes, and sometimes as a perpetrator. I remember my mother, who was politically very liberal, became infuriated when she visited the first history museum that had a giant display depicting Mexico as a peaceable Aztec place until evil Europeans attacked it violently. She was Mexican, and she objected to that being the narrative attached to her race. She pointed out that this is the story of every people. The English language came to be through Viking, French, Anglo-Saxon, and other conquerors, no people has been immune from original sin expressed in unimaginably harsh ways. The whole world, as we know it, its borders, its language, its ethnicities, its history, was shaped by sin. But sin has also shaped each of our personal histories as well, as I've pointed out. Our whole life is marked by sin. Children are beautiful, open, and loving, but are also prone to scheming and lying. Worse, we learn as children how sinful others are. Many people are nearly crippled with shame at something they did or someone else did to them as children, something sinful and ugly. We grow up wounded by sin and our personality develops in part by sinning even more to compensate. We are wounded by self-doubt, so we develop a blind pride to cover it up. We fear we are unlovable, so we become vain, dressing, speaking, or throwing our weight around to get some sin-tainted approval a flirtatious look, a sarcastic laugh, or begrudging respect. As we enter adulthood, our sin dominates our life in new ways. The constant anger of unforgiveness, the constant busyness our greed and restlessness demands, the lust that is a fire that never goes out, especially since we feed it with fresh fuel constantly. We establish ourselves a little in life and find ourselves sinning against our spouse by unkindness and selfishness. 
And we do this even while we find ourselves judgmentally unwilling to overlook our spouse's sins. Our envy fuels our self-aggrandizement, which fuels our workaholism, which leaves us stressed and anxious. We want to stand up for what's right, but we compromise again and again. And our personal sin becomes complicit in the larger sins of our nation. Our purchases support sin. Our work supports sin. Our votes support sin. Worst of all, as we shall see in future episodes, are our sins of omission. We could affect real change in our communities, but we don't. Our neighbors don't ever fall in love with the beautiful way of Christian life and holiness because they don't ever see the beautiful way of Christian life and holiness. They only see us. The narrow gate passage in Luke comes right after Jesus tells Christians that we should be yeast in the world, the ingredient that makes the whole dough rise. If we don't do our job, the entire culture fails, embracing sins and superficiality and meanness and embracing the slaughter of the innocents and destruction of marriage. If Christians don't do what they should, the culture ends up looking like our culture. We each lack faith, and if we do nothing to strengthen it, our faith fades to dark on a dimmer switch. Since we don't talk to God, we don't know Him. Since we don't know Him, we don't trust Him. Since we don't trust Him, the future looks hopeless. Since the future looks hopeless, we don't address the world's problems. So, should morally compromised people and morally compromised nations all go to heaven? No questions asked. Well, heaven is a place where people who sacrifice for others go, people who turn their gaze up and out from their own egos. In heaven, I will never be the center of attention. I will never get to insist on my way. Everything will be his way. A lot of us will have a hard time agreeing to that. But let's switch to the hope part of today's podcast, shall we? Because no, not everyone is headed to hell, Jesus says. Far from it. Quote, and people will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and will recline at table in the kingdom of God. For behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. This is very much like the vision of heaven in Flannery O'Connor's short story, Revelation, which I think I referred to once before. In it, Mrs. Turpin is a fake friend of Jesus. She doesn't really like the real Jesus or what he really likes. She has a fake Jesus in her mind that loves her and that she loves. This is where a lot of us are. Jesus wants us to be real friends with the real him, and in this story, he sends Mrs. Turpin a special revelation as a key part of the story. After she has revealed herself to be judgmental and mean, she sees a vision. Quote, a visionary light settled in her eyes. She saw a vast swinging bridge extending upward from the earth toward a field of living fire. Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. There were whole companies of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of black people in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were singing on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. She lowered her hands and gripped the rail of the hog pen, 
her eyes small but fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead. In a moment, the vision faded, and she remained where she was, immobile. End quote. These are the people Jesus is welcoming into heaven. People who don't have the luxury to be fussy and self-satisfied. People we've met before in the extraordinary story who are so beaten down by life that they can only look up. When he describes what the lost souls will see in heaven, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, he is pointing out what the ragtag crowd from Mrs. Turpin's vision will see. And there are a lot of them. St. John in the book of Revelation says that the people he saw in heaven were a great multitude which no one could count. Because just as we are born as sinners in a community of sinners, we are also born in the image of God in a community of images of God, and our creativity and virtue and energy fills the world with good things. The world is shaped by love, not just by sin. Think just this day all the people whose goodness touched your life. The kind deeds you personally experienced yesterday and today from those who love you or from strangers. Think of those who work on electric lines, street maintenance, law enforcement, garbage trucks, cell services. Think of all the people who fed you today. All the people in the supply chain from farm to grocer from factory to shipping to your home. Think of employers who paid you and your family and your friends. Think of healthcare workers standing ready to help you, teachers serving the community. Think of veterans who keep you safe. And that's just a fraction of the help you experienced just today. And Jesus says, people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and will recline at table in the kingdom of God. This is Jesus himself saying that many from outside our faith will be saved. People who saw goodness, truth, and beauty, and by embracing it, embraced Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Wait a second. Does that sound like a contradiction? We started out saying that the way is narrow and few they are that find it. Now we are saying that other religions make it in? My daughter went through a period in college after studying other religions where she decided that it wasn't just possible for other religions to get someone to heaven, but it was almost as likely or more likely for them to do so. No, 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 I told her. Everyone on earth will die, and every one of us will wind up in the same place, before the gaze of Jesus Christ, the God-man from Nazareth. He's real. We know this from the truth of the resurrection, and the system of world-changing virtues that followed after the resurrection. We also know this from what he said. He is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. We pick Lord. In any case, when you die, you will meet Jesus, and he will be off-putting to a great many people. But I hope not to you and me. Anyway, I told my daughter that we won't be surprised to meet him when we die. But Jewish people, Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus will be surprised to meet him when they die. How will the experience be for them? Well, for Protestant Christians, if they lived their baptism into Jesus Christ, they will be well prepared for this moment. But we should pray that when Jesus appears as the eternal high priest, presiding over an eternal liturgy that looks suspiciously like a mass or a divine liturgy, that it won't be an insurmountable obstacle to them. Jewish people at the moment of death will be the chosen people finally meeting their Messiah and seeing in that lamb the final form of the Passover that they had celebrated so often. We should pray that they won't object to Jesus' claims of Messiahship to the end, however. When you die, I told my daughter, you may be standing next to a good Muslim. 
he will have learned true things about God that will help him at that moment under the gaze of Jesus Christ. He will have learned that God is one and wants our submission, but he also learned prejudices that might stop him from embracing Jesus. St. John Paul remembered one Muslim with him in a cathedral who said, but nothing can compare to our magnificent Muslim monotheism. And when you die, the Muslim next to you might wince reflexively at the reality of the Trinity. He might struggle to accept that God is calling him to submit not to the unseeable, unknowable one, but to a slave, because that's the form Jesus took when he became man. You might also stand there with a good Buddhist woman. She might see in Jesus' life of Beatitudes, his blessed are the meek, the balance she has worked for for her whole life. She might admire his rejection of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But she could also easily be repulsed by Jesus' embrace of suffering, and she might be unable to recover from the very fact of the encounter itself. She expected non-being, not an intense encounter with a source of being. She spent a lifetime preparing for the end of personhood. Will she be able to embrace a divine person? An elderly Hindu priest might be with you when you die, and he would have the same problem. A Hindu believer may have expected this moment to reaffirm their belief that the material world is an illusion. Instead, he will encounter the Word made flesh. Incarnation is the antithesis of Eastern religion. How will the Hindu react? So dying and meeting Jesus will be an awkward moment for nearly everyone you are with. They will all have become accustomed to thinking of God in very different ways. They may have pursued him sincerely and gotten to know him partly, but at that moment of truth, they will learn how well they actually do know him. Everyone except Catholics and Orthodox Christians will face a crisis at death, right? Ah, not so fast. Islam knows about God incompletely, but they often put us to shame as regards submission to his will. Hindu devotions may look wild and crazy, but we can learn from their sincerity and their intensity. Buddhist spirituality is negation. That's not enough, but it's an important first step that Catholics often fail to take. The truth is, many Catholics will not rush into the arms of Jesus either. The road is narrow and the gate is small and few will find it. If we haven't spent any real time with him, we will pound on the door and hear the terrible words, I do not know you. Anyway, that's the message I shared with my daughter. I suggest you share it with your own children. You should even tell your young children about hell, Pope Francis said. In a morning meditation in 2016, he recalled how in childhood he was taught about the four last things, death, judgment, hell, or glory. He said he knew what some would say. Father, this frightens us. Teach them anyway, he said. Quote, it is the truth, because if you do not take care of your heart and you always live far away from the Lord, there's a danger, the danger of continuing in this way, far away from the Lord, for eternity. This is very bad, end quote. My wife and I begin our confirmation class for St. Benedict's Parish here in Atchison, Kansas, by giving the students an overview of salvation history using a drawing. And here, I said one year, pointing to the pit I had drawn on the whiteboard, here you have H-E double hockey sticks. In part, I was trying to be funny, but in part, I was afraid to say the word hell. A student put me in my place. Mr. Hoops, he said, my mom says hell is a real place, and it's the devil who doesn't want us to say its name. Ouch, he's right. And on July 13, 1917, 
the world met one person who doesn't avoid talking to children about hell, even young children, Our Lady. Mary appeared repeatedly to three shepherd children in Fatima, Portugal, in apparitions which were attested by a miracle that tens of thousands saw. A few months before that October miracle, though, Mary showed the shepherd children a vision of hell that frightened them so much it changed their lives, and, based on their testimony, kept on changing lives, including mine. We can learn a lot from how Our Lady of Fatima spoke about hell. The first thing she did was talk a lot about heaven before mentioning hell. A year earlier, the shepherd children experienced a visit by a heavenly creature, an angel. Then, when Our Lady first appeared in May, she talked of heaven and dazzled the children with her own heavenly brilliance. In fact, she didn't tell them about hell until she had shown them heaven for months in her person and promised that her immaculate heart would triumph and told them that they would go to heaven if they prayed a lot. So we should also spend a lot more time with our children on heaven than on hell, telling them what friendship with Jesus will be like and how we can start being his friends right now. Next, Mary taught the children to pray for sinners' salvation before she showed them their damnation. The vision of hell came in July, but first in June, Our Lady of Fatima taught the children to pray, O my Jesus, forgive us, save us from the fire of hell, lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need. Thus, before she ever went into detail about hell, she had helped them develop a habit of prayer to save souls from it. In fact, Jesus did the same thing. Before he talked about the narrow way, he gave us the Our Father prayer. And we did the same thing, teaching the Our Father prayer to our children, teaching them to ask deliverance from the evil one. The third thing Mary did is when she did show them hell, she put it in context. Only after all that preparation, did the Blessed Mother tell Francisco, Jacinta, and Lucia about hell in her July appearance. This was the famous Three Secrets of Fatima appearance. She follows her vision of hell with a prediction of World War II and of attacks on the church. In other words, she brought up hell with two other subjects, war and persecution, that show the great evil mankind is capable of. Then she told the children she would visit several more times. So she followed up the vision of hell with plenty of opportunity to comfort and correct the children on the heavy subject that she had introduced. If we do what Our Lady of Fatima did, we can expect our children to learn what the children in Fatima learned. St. John Paul II said, quote, Jacinta had been so deeply moved by the vision of hell during the apparition of July 13th that no mortification or penance seemed too great to save sinners, end quote. One of those children, Lucia, would later write words that are a great way to sum up this whole episode. She said, quote, Hell is a reality. It is a supernatural fire and not physical. Continue preaching about hell, because our Lord himself spoke about hell, and it is in sacred scripture. God does not condemn anyone to hell. God gave man the liberty to choose, and God respects this human liberty. End quote. And that's the final truth about hell. That gives children a true image of the loving God who wants us to spend time with him, not a vindictive God eager to punish us. It teaches us to go beyond euphemisms like H-E double hockey sticks and help children learn the gigantic power for good that their relationship with Jesus Christ offers them. May he know us well when we meet him on that great day.
The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story.